Welcome back to another episode of Say Who Say Pod. He's Danny O'Neill. I'm Christian Capel. And this, I'm told, is a, a new and improved intro music track. Some sort of some sort of something. I'm I'm hearing it for the first time. Pod. 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 I think that's kind of what you requested, isn't it? Asking you shall receive. There we go. <laughs> I think that's perfect. Uh, that perfectly captures my uh, my my understated nature. It's pretty good. And the contrast in it, uh, I once got in a lot of trouble for explaining that one of the things I liked in radio was when things sounded janky. <laughs> Where I was like, I, I, I like it. It's generally my preference for things to sound like they're put together with scotch tape and bailing wire. Like I, yeah. I, I think that's just the aesthetic that I prefer for audio. And I, I think that that falls right in that category, right, right into that category. Well, for a podcast that was started like kind of with with the with the permission but not necessarily like wholehearted support from my former employer yeah it was very uncorporate they were like yeah. well, you could do it if you want but don't yeah. expect anything from us fine <laughs> i just just you know like would you go away now <laughs> like would you leave us alone we'll let you do your stupid podcast Stupid little 162 five-star review podcast on, on Apple, I might add. But Yeah, uh, that's right, because we want five stars like Nick Saban. You give us four stars, we're inclined to think you're hating. Yeah, and we don't even want it. We're not even going to acknowledge the three stars. I hate to even say that out loud, <laughs> you know, even though they make up the majority of the NFL draft every year. Yeah, those are, those are the OKGs. We don't want any OKGs. <laughs> Oh, Chris Peterson will spend the rest of his life like pulling out his hair, uh, pushing back on the uh, the false OKG narratives. <laughs> Why do you think he cares so much about? Because he is someone who is very concerned with how people have characterized him, which I understand because he wants people to under understand what he meant. Right? Same with the burnout thing. Like when you said that he really doesn't like the idea that people will characterize his decision to leave Washington as a result of burnout. It it really bothers him when there's a public perception of something that isn't quite right. Yeah, I think because so the the most frequent mischaracterization of OKG is that like the the caliber of player is secondary. Mm -hmm. We just want a great student who's a a boy scout, you know, who's just an awesome person and you know, hopefully he can play. And Chris Peterson has always said, like, no, the very first requirement is he has to be a really good player, like, mm -hmm. period. And he's always said that. Like, there's never been any confusion on the messaging when, like, there, you know, he's actually asked to define what an OKG is. It's just that they want that really good player, wanted, I should say, he's not coaching anymore, that really good player to be a really good person who is dedicated to the classroom and, like, I think beyond just what that guy achieved in high school, like what his GPA in high school is, it's it's can this guy thrive at the University of Washington academically? So that was always like a main consideration. And I'd, I'd been told that the high school GPA was like a barrier to being recruited by UW, basically. Like if they started to look at a guy and his 
his GPA wasn't at a certain level, like they weren't even going to bother type of thing. But it wasn't like, okay, let's just go find all the best 4.0 students in California who play football and, you know, take them or whatever. I feel like Chris Peterson kind of felt like that was that was sort of the perception. Um, and then I think toward the end, I, like if he had kept coaching, I wouldn't have been surprised if he would have maybe started to try to phase that out a little bit just from a messaging perspective. I think it was being used against them and – you know, there were starting to kind of be some murmurs about like, well, it's it's elitist or, you know, they only want, there's only a certain ki- kind of person who's allowed to play at the University of Washington type of thing. So um, I, I think it was getting, it was starting to just get into the realm of being a little bit problematic for them that way. But I, his big thing was like, we're not just looking for Boy Scouts. We want the best football player. Like if you're not a really good football player, you're not an OKG. The really hard thing, and this is beyond Chris Peterson, and it's beyond college football even, it happens in the NFL too, is those sort of characterizations slide so easily into coded language of how people talk about types of players and sort of what they're really saying. I mean, Deion Sanders kind of had some of this where he just came out and, and said it and Rich Eisen laughed at it, but he was talking about the quarterback be coming from a two-parent household where you want your defensive end. Like, it's slides, and I can see from a coach's perspective, and it, especially like hearing you describe that about Chris Peterson, where you're like, wait, wait, you're applying that in a way that I don't mean it at all. Right. Like you're using that as we only want Boy Scouts or we only want. And that's not actually what the criteria is. I've always taken it like what Chris Peterson has said is that he he feels there's a specific combination of of traits that respond best in their system. Like that they they know the guys that 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 kind of thrive in the way that they coach and they're more selective about not throwing a scholarship offer to everyone that meets their athletic criteria. They're just a little more discerning about like, okay, what, what, what do we, what do we think goes in? Cause you look at the players he had at Boise state and it certainly was not a collection. I mean, Titus young was an extremely good player for them. Like there were other players who were, would not fall into that sort of the, the boy scout does everything the right way. Like he, he certainly had some, some players that would be, not of that prototype low maintenance. Um, but even then, using a term like low maintenance, I realize like, it's it's all-encompassing. The coded language is everywhere when it comes to sports. Yeah, and like I think there's it, it's not like every single player up and down the roster in every recruiting class he had, you'd look at and go, oh, wow, like extremely high academic achiever. Or, oh, wow, like this background or that background. I, I think... In, and I like I, I think Kalen DeBoer believes this too that like when you have a certain culture and there is a certain standard for like the average player you bring into your program, there can be those kind of one-offs where you know maybe yeah maybe the guy didn't have the high school GPA or like he's not as good of a student, but there's you you, you do some research and there's some extenuating circumstances or you know this hey character-wise is this guy right where we want him right now relative to everyone else in our program? Maybe not, but when he gets comes into a, a program where everybody's doing it the way that we want to do it, 
and the players uphold that in the locker room, and that's the standard upheld by the players. And it's not just the coaches, but everybody's bought in, and he's the odd man out. If if he doesn't toe the line, then you know it's it's like I've mentioned before, like kind of the the Patriot way, right? Like Bill Belichick in, in that system, like they knew that they could bring some guys in, and they they were gonna either fall in line or or it just wasn't gonna work out like right away. It's very funny because. Bill Belichick and Pete Carroll, and some of this is oversimplified, but they're about the opposite approaches to coaching in terms of Belichick is entirely like, we are going to give you a description about what you're supposed to do. We don't want you talking and being sort of a, a, a personality publicly. Like we believe in sharing less information as opposed to more. Um, we are going to tell you what you need to do. And if you're not able to fulfill that, or we see an opportunity to get a younger, cheaper player that will be able to do the same job or a reasonable facsimile, we'll ship you out of here. And in doing that, they've found the way to bring in players who have been either too willful or too outsized, or like Randy Moss just basically quit trying when he was with the Raiders. Pete Carroll is the exact opposite in terms of we're going to embrace all of the individual characteristics and you can come here and pretty much say whatever you want publicly. Mm-hmm. Like there's, there's not a whole, like his rules of like protect the team. He, he has a very wide tolerance for, for what guys can say. And he's because of that has been able to take in a lot of players that were phased out elsewhere and didn't get, so they take an opposite approaches to get to the same end um, which has kind of led me to believe that it's not, it's not how your system functions, but it's the consistency of your system. Like you can win a lot of different ways, but the one thing that has to happen is you have to be absolutely consistent with, with the way you approach things. Because if you're not, then you start creating tiers of different, and then things, it becomes much harder to control that. I think Pete and Bill Belichick are very consistent in very different ways, but they're each very consistent. I think along the lines of like the, the GPA and academic achievement thing, uh, what I think what resonated the most under Chris Peterson, and I, I haven't had specific conversations with Kalen DeBoer about this yet. I would imagine he kind of falls in the same category because he's he seems like a pretty realistic, pragmatic guy, was that like Chris Peterson's idea of a you know, someone who was really doing their best academically at UW once they got there was literally just, are you doing your personal best? Yeah. Like, did you see a two, a two, three go to a two, eight or whatever? And he, like, he, he would talk about how, you know, the, the proudest he would be of a player academically would be like a guy who he knew didn't like school, didn't like class, but did got okay grades anyway. Because, mm-hmm. like, his story was always that was him, right? He didn't like going to school. He didn't like going to class. School was not for him, you know. I think he he went to college probably just because he could play football and he wanted to play football, and that that was what you did. But, you know, the, like, the fact, um, you know, the fact he wound up staying and getting a master's degree is, is kind of funny. Um, but, you know, I like, I think that's that's sort of what you're looking for on the recruiting trail. Can they cut it in, in college and, like, will they – whether they like school or not, whether it's their favorite thing, like, do they understand and accept the challenge of like, hey, you still have to do it and you still have to like 
try and do your best and try to improve and all those sort of things. It's part of the deal, right? I So I had, I think Corey Dillon took three classes at the UW. It's possible that he took four, but like he was there for one quarter. And I took one of those mm. three classes with him. And I think I've talked about this before. The one thing about Corey was like, Corey always went to class. Like it was the... That there was, I was a history major. There was a lot of reading in that class, and that's coming from someone who has volunteered to do a lot of reading. Like, I, if you were looking for the easiest path through maintaining eligibility, like that was not the class to take. But Corey was in there every every class. Like he went to every class, and there was a certain amount of like I was like he he understood it as as the deal, and I can remember. I can remember a columnist talking to him um, because I was covering the team for the student paper and I can remember it was a columnist for the Seattle Times was talking to him about like whether or not that he was committed to the academics. And it always struck me as so funny where I was like, what are you looking for there? Like, and it's probably an accurate sort of question of how, because he's doing what he's supposed to be doing. Do you want that person who doesn't like school to really suddenly like school? And if so, why? Like the reality is, is that college football is a de facto feeder system for anybody who wants to go into the NFL. And that doesn't mean that college football only exists for that or even that's the function it serves for most of the players because it doesn't. But if you're going to play in the NFL, you have to go to college for three years. That, that's essentially what has to happen. Does that person who goes to college, do they need to be like have their world orbit around the academics of it? That's sort of a, a weird expectation, yet we want them to role play. And by we like sort of that general, like, have you really gotten committed to the academics? Like, no, Corey Dillon was not committed to the academics. In fact, he walked out of that final probably about ha- halfway through it and didn't it was did not enroll again for the next quarter because he went to the NFL draft and he got chosen and he had an incredible career. I, he held up his end of the deal. <laughs> like yeah. He went to the classes. And maybe that's not like long-term sustainable at the UW, but there's always this contrast that I find. And he was a junior college transfer, and there's differences there. But it's always like we want, we want to believe so badly in this fiction that just doesn't necessarily resonate with some of the players that are at a school. I, I got to laugh at the – I mean, maybe it's different in other schools. I only, I only attended one college, right? But – the, like the the old school, um, you know, trope of like, oh, like the athletes just cut class or they got people doing it for them or do their work for them, whatever. I I had a number of classes with, with athletes, basketball players, football players when I was in school. I guarantee all of them attended more class than I did. And, and, and like... <laughs> Especially it gets doing monitored, like, man. Yeah, you can't. You like you can't. You skip can't skip classes. As a classes. Football player anymore. You like no way. Like yeah. there's no there's you know, if I blow off my eight a.m. classes, just just me. Nobody's calling me. Nobody's coming to find me. Yeah. Nobody. I'm always reminded. I have a cousin um, who's a, a psychiatrist. He, he did his undergrad. So he's from Kelso, Washington, um, where my mom's family is from, and. I say that like I'm from Longview. It's literally right over the river. Like it's, you know, some far away. Now. Did you guys look down your nose at the people from Kelso? Oh, we do. 
We do. <laughs> except for except for people who um, listen to this podcast, give us a five star rating, and subscribe to onmontlake.com. Um, give us five stars, like we're Nick Saban. If you give us four stars, we're inclined to think you're hating. He was a he was a great student um, and got recruited essentially just as a student to go to this school called Saint Meinrad in Indiana. His class was the last graduating class there before it became like exclusively a, a like a priest school as a seminary. Is that uh-huh. what it's called? So he he was the last class there of just like regular undergraduates. But I mean, his I, I'm going to botch the number. I'm sure his graduating class, his probably had 15, 20, 25, you know, it was very, very, very small. And so he'd tell like, if, if someone didn't show for class one day, there were a lot of priests who, who were instructors there and they'd like, go to the dorm room and knock on the door. Like, where are you? You know, like, are, are you okay? Are you coming? Like, what do you do? Why aren't you here? So I would always think of that, you know, whenever I didn't, didn't make it to a class, I would just be like, man, I'm, you know, I'm glad I'm at the uh, gigantic state school and not at St. Meinrad University. <laughs> but I say all that to say, yeah, nobody's like, I would, I would, I would be conscious of it sometimes like interviewing guys for the student paper. And then, you know, whether we were talking about like, academics or not if it would come up like oh you know class check that was a big thing when sark took over i think was that they were doing class checks or whatever he had somebody up on campus making sure guys were were in their classes and i would see that sometimes too and i would just think like man i'm glad glad the daily doesn't have that like nobody's <laughs> nobody's doing that for me like i you, you really you really can't get away with it when you're a football player so i think that uh it busts some of the stigma up for sure yeah it's it, it's it's very funny. How's spring practice going? It's going well. Um, I can't decide whether to be like disappointed that the weather's been so terrible that all of them have been inside the Dempsey except for one, or like grateful that there is there's an indoor facility for them to go into and it's like thirty five degrees and raining sideways outside, so we don't have to stand out in that. But um, no, going well. I think. Uh, Pretty competitive on Monday. We're recording this on Tuesday morning. So Monday is the most recent practice I saw. They were in full pad. The pads were popping, Danny. That's one of my favorite my favorite football practice cliches. All the pads came on for the first time. They were popping. It's, it's always staples, more physical man. when the pads come on. It's one of the staples. And then and then you start looking to forward to maybe we're going to have a couple fights. That was also my favorite of uh, practice coverage in training camp or in offseason when People would be very, very particular about noting who who got into two different scraps around the field. Oh yeah, and you can like you you know who's looking for the fights on the, on the beat. You know, yes. you know who's who's going to make sure they know exactly who was involved. And then inevitably, after a little while, that leads to the obvious question. Another one of my very favorite cliches. Hey, uh, ready to start hitting someone wearing a different color than your own jersey? <laughs> yeah. That's another Ready good one. Ready to start hitting somebody else. You get a little tired of hitting the same, same teammates over and over again, aren't you? Yep, yep, yep. And stories that are written every year with different quotes saying the exact same thing. I'm waiting for the first response that's like, no, I I, um, I like I like hitting these guys. What if it was like, no, nah, there's one guy on the offense that I really want to smoke. Like, And I, <laughs> I feel like I haven't gotten my shot yet, and I, I want to make him remember me. <laughs> the thing is, there are those guys. I think more, probably more so in college. Because you've got the like freshman coming in trying to prove himself dynamic, and you know, like there's there's always the freshman who's like playing way too physical for what the level of contact is for that particular drill, 
and like you know kind of like he's gonna he's gonna get his shot in and like make himself felt in a in a drill where like the upperclassmen know like no no this was supposed to be like half speed or this was supposed to be just rap and not to the ground or whatever and um jv on sunday was that guy his oh, first, really his first cup well and I, i'm not saying like in in a half speed drill he was going full speed or whatever but like he definitely if he got a chance to to like lower his shoulder and run into somebody he was gonna and so that kind of made him the guy who like all the upperclassmen defensively were like okay if that guy ever fumbles or if that guy ever gets like a big hit put on him like we're gonna celebrate you know like 10 times more than we would have otherwise so you do you you do get some of that um that's well, one of one of those that happened was, and it was before I got to to UW, but Akaika Malloy, like absolutely clobbered Lincoln Kennedy, and I think it was during the season. It wasn't a spring practice thing, but uh, Akaika was on the scout team, and he and he popped Lincoln Kennedy in one of those. It wasn't half speed, but it definitely was not like and and Akaika. I don't know if he knocked Lincoln down, but. I mean, Lincoln might have weighed twice as much as Akaika at that point, and but it was like one of these legendary things of like when everybody that would have had knew. to have been like true freshman Akaika, right? Yeah, if, if those two overlapped. Yeah, like it's. I mean, it was it was the very beginning. Akaika was a walk on, mm-hmm. um, and and hit him, and it was something that everybody talked about. Um, was kind of the moment that everybody knew that Akaika sort of punched way above his weight, and he was Akaika was a huge hitter. Yeah, he. It's fun. I mean, because of our our podcast name and the the clip that we've played the last couple of times, it reminds me. I when I did that story, I talked to him about that. I mean, I like that. I, I think most former players kind of get you can sense them kind of getting fired up talking about it. Um, but he was one was really like you could tell he's he was he was kind of kind of going into the zone. You could you could see him sort of mentally going back into that tunnel as he was as he was talking about it and. Yeah, as like an undersized, you know, one-time walk-on DB who liked to hit people. Like, yeah, he kind of, he probably embodied that to a little bit. He was a thumper, man, an absolute thumper. Do you do you read spring practice coverage? I do. I read yeah. all of it. Are you, I've been, are you I've into been it? following. I've been following intently. So, can I can I can I ask a couple questions? Yeah, let's do it. Who looks best? And and I'll say like the. Reading this story, I think it was two days ago. It was on the edge rushers. Um, is there anybody that looks and stands out like they've shown up in the the best shape of their life? To borrow another training camp, like somebody that looks physically different. Um, physically different. I don't know. I think like you know, ZTF and Braylon Trice are are you know you you know who those guys are. Mm-hmm. They look good. They're going to be the starters. I think Savelle Smalls is, um, you know, th- this is kind of the spring and, and the camp where you're looking for him to make a really big step to to sort of be that that pass rusher, and that's TBD. The guy who I'm I'm really interested to see where he winds up depth chart wise is Zach Durfee, the mm-hmm. transfer from Sioux Falls. Um, he looks really athletic. He's got really good burst. There's a couple guys like I mean, like Maurice Himes isn't practicing right now because he had that scary injury on the on the first day. And I think he's okay. He's, he's out there. Um, so it's, you know, he's, I don't think that's a, a real severe thing. At least doesn't seem like it is. He's another guy who, I mean, just kind of on the hoof, as they like to say, walking around, uh, is a good looking athlete. Lance Holtzclaw. I'm also, I'm curious to see. Um, he's 
two it's about two thirty right now. He said that they want him playing like two forty five to two fifty. And it sounds like they're confident that he can get to two forty by the start of the season. So like he you know, I don't think there's any any secret about like what, what kind of what style of pass rusher is he is. He's a he's a speed guy, you know. He's he's gonna win with his speed off the edge. He got in and sacked quote unquote sacked or touch sacks, right? Because they're quarterbacks and it's practice, mm-hmm. but Sacked Dylan Morris yesterday. I've noticed him in the backfield a few times, um, but I yeah, I mean, I think he looks really explosive and you know could could potentially be a part of their their third down packages at least. Um, but yeah, that's the you know we'll see kind of what what the three four five spots look like behind Trice and ZTF. I think they they would really like Savelle Smalls to be one of those guys, um, and I think he gives them enough against the run that you'll see him in the rotation regardless. But if he could come through and be a guy who gives you, you know, four, five, six sacks, that that would help them immensely. All right, next one up is inside linebacker. When last we talked about this, it was Olofoshio, Tupatala, maybe maybe Raylan Goforth. Kind of looking at the competition, how 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 have guys looked there? Yeah, I think those are your. That's probably your your top three with uh-huh. Carson Bruner playing too. Um, They've mixed in Drew Fowler, former walk-on from Bellevue, who uh, had a couple Pac-12 offers and walked on at UW in 2019, 2020. Um, and then Demario King, their junior college guy they took last year who was hurt all season. He's he's getting in there every now and then. Um, I, yeah, I'm I'm really curious to see if Raylan Goforth winds up beating out either Ulafosio or Tuputala. It's like, it's kind of hard. I'm it'd be hard to see the coaches passing up either of those guys. Mm-hmm. Like this is, this is kind of the year for you, Lafoscio, right? Like had all the hype going into 2021, got banged up, wound up having a season ending injury, got hurt again in the winter, needed most of the year to get back last year. And now it's like sixth year senior. This is it. He's healthy. You talk about like best shape of your life and all that. He was the guy on day one where it was like, Oh, whoa, his like, Eddie looks huge, you know, yeah. and like in a good way, like he's got, looks like he's bulked up and, um, yeah, I mean, the coaches love Tupatala. I think they, they probably looked at him as kind of one of the, one of more, one of their more underrated guys last year. Um, I think he was, you know, around their second, third, fourth leading tackler or something like that without, without looking. Um, he started every game and he was like a guy for them. And so it's like, Okay, is either one of those guys gonna not be a dude this year? You know, these are, but then you went out and got Raylan Goforth for a reason, who's a senior who has starting experience at USC, was you know, part of teams that have competed for Pac twelve championships and all that. So um yeah, I'm I'm really curious to see the competition between those three in particular. We got to talk to Goforth for the first time yesterday. Um think I'm gonna write a little bit something about him today for uh for Wednesday morning, but um, if nothing else, like he gives them a veteran presence, either, you know, whether he's splitting reps, coming off the bench, a series every now and then, I think they, they have turned linebacker from a, a problem area to potentially like a good problem area where, yeah, I think they've got at least three guys that are going to make it really, really hard on them to determine who the two starters are. And then, you know, we'll see if Carson Bruner can be a factor there too. What are other things that have jumped out? I feel like I feel, I feel like those are those are my my top two questions that 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 I that I would say. But what are what are other things 
like as as you've looked at and watched them play, whether it's the transfers or what other things have stood out to you this practice session? They've got this receiver from Vegas, uh, Rome Odunze. I think his <laughs> name is. I think um, I think he'll be in the rotation this year. It's, it's so funny because like the the known stars on the team, yep. you, you kind of just put them in the back of your mind during spring practice. Hundred percent. Is it's just like okay, because frankly, like they might not even be taking most of the reps. Like that's the case at safety right now. Like I, I think they know they know what they're going to get from Asa Turner. They really like Asa Turner. He's you know he's taking some reps. He's practicing, but it's not like they're rolling a ton of guys through safety just trying to get a sense for like what the depth is and what they have. And so you sort of forget about it. it's like okay, yeah, Braylon Trison's ETF. We don't really need to talk to them or about them. We know what they are. But uh, Rome Odunze just kind of makes you notice him every practice. It's like hard not to note that he's just kind of out there dominating. Um, he's he had such a play. A he's such a confident athlete. Like he's yeah. so he's so fun to watch. He he beat Jabbar Muhammad a couple times on Monday, where it was just like, man, like if you're if you're a corner, I don't I don't know how many other receivers you're going to face this season that are better than him. It's kind of like the the UW defense under Chris Peterson and Jimmy Lake paradox where I think it was Jake Browning said after the Rutgers game, their opener in 2016 where they went out and they, you know, they, they scored a bunch of points and blew them out. And were like, he, he had said to John Ross, like, well, well, I, I guess we don't suck, you know, because they'd spent all fall camp going against that defense. And it was not, I remember, I can't remember if that was the year where, it took him like two weeks to score a touchdown or something like that. It was just crazy. Like the defense is just dominating. And so you kind of learned as an observer, well, this is like a nationally elite defense. They know this offense inside and out. These guys are all vets. They know what's coming. So if the offense doesn't look great against that, it was just hard to draw a conclusion about what the offense was going to be. Cause like, well, who knows, right? We've seen this offense <laughs> like get just punked in practice before and then go out against other teams and, and function fine. So we'll see. And now the, the tables are kind of turned that way where the defense is wait and see. And well, what can we really learn about these corners and these safeties when it's Romo Dunza and Jalen McMillan and Jalen Polk running the routes and Michael Penix Jr. Throwing the passes, like they're probably not going to have to deal with this much talent on, on the field on a Saturday. So that's kind of how it's felt so far. Is it possible the offense is going to be better than it was last year? And they lose, they lose two starting guards, right? Mm-hmm. Pretty good players in, in, in Bainvalu and Jackson Kirkland. And their center. And, and, you, and you lost your center. But that's – and I don't want to say that's it because – but you're bringing back so much more talent than you could have reasonably hoped for. Your quarterback could have gone pro. Your top two wide receivers, but really especially Roma Dunze, could have gone pro. Your your top tackle, Tony could have gone pro, and he didn't. Like, you've got... But they scored so many points last year that I'm really hard-pressed to say, like, you know what, they, they, they could be better because that's... It's, it's a little bit difficult to imagine them being better than they were, but, God, they might be better than they were a year ago. Yeah, I mean, it depends by what metric. I think they could, because if the defense is better, they probably call a different style of game. 
you oh, know, they don't just try to, they don't just try to say like, dude, we got to get 50. <laughs> no, no, not necessarily because, you know, you score those points in the first three quarters. You're not thinking about yeah, yeah. Know, running clock or managing the game or whatever, but, and, and look, I mean, they're still going to be there. There's some great quarterbacks, some great playmakers on their schedule. Like they're going to, I think they're going to have to score points to win. I think they'll be better defensively, but I don't think they're going to be so much better where like they're not concerned about trying to score 40 plus every game. The, but yeah, I mean, the O-line is the big question. I did for a while, I kind of thought, you know, Wayne Talapapa was a lot more important for them last year than maybe. I think he was a little bit underappreciated. Uh-huh. He had over 1,000 yards from scrimmage, averaged over six yards a carry. He was a really good pass blocker. He was, what, 24 years old? Just this, like, veteran, you know, mature, new, new. I, I don't think it took him long at all to pick up the offense, leader, captain type, all that, like, I just think like the whole package is going to be kind of tough to replace, but skill wise, I mean D- Dylan Johnson, the the transfer from Mississippi State, he sat out uh, Monday. He was suited up, but didn't do anything. He's probably got something minor or nagging or whatever. But like that guy looks like a dude just physically, uh-huh. um, and you know, I mean, he's played. It's not like he's some mystery, right? He's played a ton of college football. You know, he can catch the ball, so you know he can do everything you need him to do in the offense. Um, I like I think he's probably an upgrade just talent wise, skill wise. And 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 that's just him. You've got Cam Davis back and you've got Daniel Nagata is gonna fit in there somewhere. They didn't go get him to, to sit him on the bench. Sam Adams has looked pretty good this spring. He had a couple of long runs. He gets to the edge and, and accelerates. So like I don't And then there's Richard Newton. Yeah, and Rich hey, he got a nice series uh on Monday. A little little wildcat action. That's still in the bag. So, I, like, I'd love to hear that. They've got enough guys there that I don't think there'll be a drop off at all at running back. They might even they might even have upgraded. So, I, yeah, I, I think it, it does just come down to can they protect Penix? I, and I I hesitate to say like as well as last year because I just think that's like a that's a ridiculous standard. They gave up seven sacks mm-hmm. despite throwing the ball as much as they did. Like, I don't think you can place that as an expectation. Seven sacks in thirteen games. But if it can be close, if they can be like a national top 25 team in protecting the passer, then they, I think they have a very good chance to be better offensively. Have, have I, have I told you my, my whole sacks theory? No. The sacks is a quarterback statistic. Yeah, well, that's, that's just cause you've watched so much Russell Wilson. <laughs> <laughs> Possible. Possible. I've been tainted. It's a little different in college, and there are there are certain like hard and fast things that I believe that don't always translate to college. Like I, I think, I think sacks in college, like the line has a a bigger impact on those than they do in the NFL. But in general, like the fact that they only gave up seven sacks last year does speak to the fact that Penix gets the ball out on time. He doesn't hold it, and whereas someone like Jacob Eason. Like some of that, and with with Eason, sometimes it wasn't even just the sacks; it was the the prolonged scramble to the throw, like where it was like you needed to get rid of that ball sooner. Like, I I I think I don't I do not think that Penix is a quarterback who's going to take a lot of sacks. I think that's fair, and we also really didn't get to see, like, I don't think we even got an accurate read on his mobility last year, just because it wasn't necessary. And there were a couple, like, the 
the touchdown at the end of the first half to Jalen Polk against Michigan State, mm-hmm. where he he's about to pull it down, but he pump fakes and he's got some room to his left. He scrambles, makes a makes a, a touchdown pass. Um, he caught a touchdown pass against Washington State. That was some well, technically it was a rush because it was a it was a lateral, but um, you know I like I think if they're ten percent, fifteen percent, twenty percent worse at protecting the the passer up the middle, maybe he can negate that with his mobility a little bit, where he didn't really have to last year. And now he's a full, however long this is, you know, year and a half plus removed from his last injury. Um, Should be the healthiest he's ever been in in his football career. Um, So that could help. I, I saw Jake Dickert, Washington State's coach, say recently, like he was talking about, the need to upgrade their offensive line, how much, you know, they, they badly need to play better. I think they gave up 46 sacks last year. And he said, we gave up 46 sacks. And if anyone, and the only reason it was 46 is because we had Cam Ward. If we had anyone other than Cam Ward, it would have been 60. And I thought, I, for, first of all, I, I know, I know a lot of Wazoo fans. I, I know that there, there's some Wazoo fans who are going to see that and be like, no, if it were someone else, it would have been less because he held onto the ball too long. Yeah, so it's it does it's it's kind of like the Russell Wilson thing. Like, yep. surely he saved some with his mobility, but also he doesn't ever want to give up on a play, you know, passing wise. So he's going to hold on to it, hold on to it by time, by time, hold on to it. So it is a fine line, but I, I agree with you. I don't think Penix is is that guy. Yeah, he just he he gets he gets rid of the ball. He he he's able to dump it off. Are you ready to? Are you ready for? It's time for a conversation. I think it's worth a conversation. It is worth a conversation. Anytime you have a product that you're looking to either expand or develop a market for, Ian McFarland is someone who specializes in in those sort of conversations, and it really is uh, no risk opportunity. It's it's worth a conversation with with Ian. And last week we talked a little bit about uh, Klamath Falls algae, and if say you wanted to sell some algae from Klamath Lake that that might be it would be worth a conversation with Ian to talk about some no re, no risk uh, sales solutions his conversation that he's going to bring up with us we're switching over to the to the hardwood I was talking to uh, your friend and my friend and everyone's friend Dave Mahler uh, last week and we were discussing the varied levels of hatred of UW UW rivals and what we realized is that while 95% of our focus on UW athletics is around football, and some percentage of that last five is, is centered on men's basketball, Gonzaga has somehow managed to top both Oregon and Washington State in our hatred scale. Why? Now, we got a little bit more from Ian, and I wanted to stop there. Is, is that true? Is Gonzaga basketball the most hated rival for UW fans well I mean it, it obviously is on some individual basis if he's saying so right and David said well, what percentage of Husky fans would identify Gonzaga basketball as their most hated rival man vanishingly few I oh mean, really I, it, more so than Oregon yeah I think it might be at about 25% really yeah do that many does that does that like I'm I'm just trying to think of the portion of like all all fans of Washington athletics like 
how many of them are even like avid fans of the men's basketball program relative to the football program? You don't need to be a big fan of UW men's basketball to hate Gonzaga basketball. I think it's a huge portion of UW fans who actively root against Gonzaga and want them to lose. Yes. But to rank them ahead of, first of all, it's not a rivalry. Eh, yes, it is. It, it is It is in terms of the way that the It's a rivalry in it. terms of you wishing ill, yeah. like toward the other program. It's a rivalry that way, but it's, it's a thoroughly non-competitive basketball series. Yes. But, so they're clearly, like for me, Oregon football is still one. Like it doesn't, Gonzaga basketball doesn't even really get into the conversation there. Um, I can actually feel good for people who root for Gonzaga basketball and longtime Gonzaga fans enjoying their team. Like I can, there's a part of me like, I'm glad you have that. Like I'm not resentful. Like there isn't a person that roots for Oregon football that like knowing that they're happy doesn't do anything. Like even the people that I like that root for Oregon football, knowing that that person is happy doesn't do a thing for me to mute my feeling of like, I wish they would have lost. Yeah. Um, The more I, the more I think about this, I simply do not believe softy. (laughs) <laughs> you're telling me softy and i don't think he listens to this so it's a it, this is a this is a hypothetical softy out in the out in the universe you're telling me that if i put in front of you right now a a u-dub football victory and you can only have one a u-dub football victory over oregon and, and a basketball victory over gonzaga you're taking the, the win over gonzaga i think the question i don't think it's a direct i think it, i think the question is if you remove UW from the equation, who do you root? Would you rather have a Gonzaga basketball loss or an Oregon football loss? I still don't believe him. <laughs> I just don't. <laughs> like I, I remember when Gonzaga you know, had their first their first big Cinderella run, ninety eight, right? To, yeah, to the Elite Eight. Richie Fromm, Casey Cavalry. Um, Spink. They had the Spink kid from Seahome. Yes, and it, it, they were everyone. Everyone loved them, right? There yes. Who would who would who would hate Gonzaga, right? And then they became what they became, right? They became the the really 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 big fish in a small pan- pond in the WCC, and eventually a big fish. Generally, they are they are a premier program in college basketball. They are like. I think you would accurately, even though they haven't won a national championship yet, you would put them in that top tier of teams that could reasonably expect to compete for a title every year. Yes. I would identify them currently as a college basketball blue blood. Would... I would also contend the crux of any hatred from a Washington fan toward Gonzaga stems from the Mark Few Lorenzo Romar beef. 100%. So if Mark Few is no longer Gonzaga's coach, does that vitriol remain? Because I do think that a lot of it is just is contingent on this history that at this one time, I think still beloved, but maybe more beloved than ever at, at the point that that beef happened, Washington coach had with Gonzaga's coach. I, I think you're right. And I, I do believe if Mark Few wasn't there, it would lessen it. I don't, I don't think that, whereas at Oregon, like as we've seen, 
it really wasn't dependent upon the coach. Like it's the the rivalry accelerated under Bellotti. Like that's when it really took hold. And then with Chip Kelly, there was a level of 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 anger at UW UW fans came to train on him, but it's persevered now. I mean, we've gone through a number of coaches, and I I don't dislike Oregon any less than I used to. And do you think that there's there there's a there's a common thread here between Oregon and Gonzaga, where like they're the new kids on the block, relatively yep. speaking, right? Where UW is used to being the big state school for years and years and years. They're king in the Pacific Northwest. Not really in basketball. They had some good teams over the years, but they're, they've been a football school. But even in basketball, like Gonzaga wasn't a factor until the 90s. Mm-hmm. And so is there just an element of like, you've been surpassed long ago in your own state as the premier program, premier basketball program, even in your own state. So you're mad about that. And you've been sur- surpassed by Oregon in terms of this other school in the Pacific Northwest that's a bigger brand than you nationally that's had more success recently than you have that's played for multiple national championships in the last is we'll say 15 years now um so that i I think there's some like relinquishing of the throne a little bit that goes into that too i think they're different though like it's similar like i can see how you can paint them both of like it's the same psychological process that's going on of like the once king has been thrown dethroned and sort of looks at these new usurpers as like nouveau riche and like they're the Beverly Hillbillies who are here and sort of inventing this history they have. I think that's true for Oregon. I think with Gonzaga, there is a little bit more, it's a little more conflicted. Like it's not as quite straightforward because there are Husky fans who root for Gonzaga, which is just mind boggling to me. Like that's bigamy in my mind. I don't so that, think that can... could be why Softy has convinced himself he hates Gonzaga more is because he co-hosts a show with a, a diehard UW football fan who roots for Gonzaga. Dick Fane roots for Gonzaga. He does. Yeah, <laughs> I think that that's like that's why this debate comes up on their show all the time. <laughs> Softy's always talking about this. I I have a hard time here. Let, let, let's pick up with Ian. Uh, Ian McFarland. It's worth a conversation. You can check him out at ipmcfarland.com if you've got. Something that you're looking for sales solutions, either to grow the opportunities or to 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 find really some no risk options. It's worth a conversation with him. Here's the end of his observation about this this rivalry. They have managed to convince the world that they are both the little engine that could and a national power. You can't be both at the same time. And if that doesn't infuriate you as a rival school, you're not paying attention. That is my opinion. <laughs> Here's why. I hate Gonzaga basketball. Like the few part is part of it. And I mean, I'll even go like, as I bet there was a, there was a recruiting violation that was phoned in by one of Gonzaga's assistants where Lorenzo felt that they snitched um, to the NCAA regarding something where Gonzaga's hands weren't necessarily clean on some of that either. But then there was also the, the belief that, that Mark few referred to Lorenzo as roll out the ball Romar. And and Lorenzo was offended by that, which I understand why. Um, I'm Team Romar still, even though like Washington clearly has lost that series. Like it was L- Lorenzo's gone and all that. I'm still Team Romar. The thing that I hate about Gonzaga fans, and it's similar to soccer fans, is this belief that what they like, they can't understand how someone else doesn't like it. 
They don't understand how you can look at Gonzaga's history and what they've accomplished and the style of basketball they have and not like them. They, they, it's it's inconceivable. Like, I just don't understand. You must be a hater. Or you must be something. To which I would say, yeah, it's possible. But I also have the right to not like something just because I don't. And the fact that you feel the need to sort of look down on me and see me as some sort of simpleton because I won't recognize the transcendent beauty of this team you like actually makes me more inclined to continue disliking them, even if it's irrational, simply because I don't want you dictating the terms of fandom to me like that. Are, are they still trying to cash in on the little engine that could card? For sure. See, because I, I feel like the, I feel like it's, it's the vibe is more that they've shucked that and that, that, that they don't want to be known as like cute little Gonzaga because they're not. They're just objectively not. Like they are a power. They're a national power. I feel like they want to, I mean, like didn't Mark, Mark Few has like, he, he won't like allow people to use the term mid-major in his presence, right? Like he gets, a, he, he gets like visibly upset when people try to like even categorize the non-power five, I guess in basketball, power six conferences as mid-majors. And that was, before they were a perennial one seed and, mm-hmm. and, you know, putting guys in the league with regularity and, and all this. So like, I don't know, I, I, maybe I'm just not as plugged into it anymore, but I, I feel like Gonzaga fans see themselves as a national power and want to be regarded as such. Maybe I'm wrong. Then why do they get so defensive when they lose and everybody points out that they always choke? Because most of what you're saying, I completely agree with. And then when they lose, there becomes a a very specific, because there are a category of people who will, and I used to be among this category, who would basically say, yep, it's that time of year where Gonzaga bows out because they play in a bad conference and they're not used to the competition and they can't ever win a title and you can count on them losing every March. Then they made eight straight Sweet 16s. Right. And then that's the response that comes from the Gonzaga fans. Yeah, it sucks to root for a program that gets like they they do this this very much. They care very much about sort of that characterization of like they're very defensive about about making it clear that like we belong in the big boy conversation. When I would say that if you did, you wouldn't care about what people were saying like that, like that sort of resume recitation that's what losers do like that's the sort of thing that 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 i resort to in talking about basketball like you guys if you really are beyond it and and are not the little engine that could anymore you wouldn't do those things i guess that's fair because i'm trying to think like you know if if kentucky's reputation became that they were you know, if Duke's reputation, if if uh, North Carolina's reputation became that that they kept losing in the first or second round, which again Gonzaga has not done in a long time, right? Like I, I I see that as a thing of the past. But if that were their reputation, then their fans would be most upset about it. It would be their fans would be the first ones like calling it out and wanting people fired because this kept happening. <laughs> rather than so i guess i i guess i see what but but like but they would never gonzaga fans would never challenge the idea of like sort of that question of would we benefit from a different coach like they wouldn't ever entertain like that and that's that's what separates you from being a truly like when you're intolerant of success 
like Seahawk fans have actually graduated to the to the status of powerhouse NFL because they complain about the most successful coach in the franchise's history. Like that would never happen. Like Gonzaga wants to be acknowledged as a truly remarkable and one of the great stories ever without having any of the pressure that comes along with that, which is that you're expected to win. But isn't that just them being rational? Maybe. You got to be out of your mind to ever want them to have a coach who's not Mark Few. Yes. Maybe. So, so shouldn't wouldn't, they just... wouldn't, wouldn't the same be true of the Seahawks with Pete Carroll? Yeah. I mean... But there's, I, I, I would say, a full third of Seahawks fans believed that the Seahawks should have kept Russell over Pete Carroll, like at the time that decision was made. Right. And I'm saying... Shouldn't we be, shouldn't we be lauding to some degree Gonzaga fans for understanding what they have? Like you, you can't, you can't say, oh, the fact that they've never like after any of their like tournament exits called for Mark Few to be fired is like like a point against them. It is kind of. It, kind I mean, of I, it shows. It shows that they recognize their place in the pecking order. They want to be the little engine that could and the heavyweight. And you got to pick a lane. I don't know if you know uh, Matt Pence much. I do know Pence. So, man, so Pence is it, he? Um, he's from Pennsylvania. He he went to uh, Ohio University, and his big he is just Mister Underdog. He like only you know hates the biggest brands, hates Ohio State. For those who don't know, Matt Pence he used to cover the Sounders for the Seattle Times and for the Athletic. Um, he's written a book about the Sounders. He's at, he's out of journalism now, but. We and we all we all joke like Gonzaga is the ultimate like conundrum. I'm like, well, so what what are they to you, Matt? Like, because this is you know like one seed every year. You're gonna root for the one seed. You're gonna root for the other been the number one team in the country. Team that you know they got they got a lottery pick on their roster. They got one and done guys now. Like, come on, this is are they still the little engine that could? So I think his justification is as long as they're in the WCC, he he can he can get down with with rooting for Gonzaga so see that's that's little engine that could like at its core that's a little engine that could mo don't you have to give them some credit though for like they don't have a football program and they well, still have a like a super passionate <laughs> fan base see for, now for we get dangerous don't you have to give them some credit is that like the Gonzaga fan that tells me i have to appreciate what they've done i don't have to do anything it's America. I can be as irrationally resentful of anything as I want. And they're not the first school to do that. You remember the Georgetown Hoyas? Like, that was a prominent program. They don't have a football team. So it's not like they're unique or even, they're not even the first Jesuit school to do it. Yeah. <laughs> Does it, the true test of, of the hatred, though, and it's hard to gauge because, like, I think there's, like, there's always going to be, like, a slice of that reserve for the University of Arizona just because of the the stature that they occupy in the college basketball world like they're the they're the bullies so you're oh, do, you, do you think that do you think that the Gonzaga hatred extends to Tommy Lloyd and do you think that there are people who wouldn't necessarily dislike Arizona as much as they they do now because Mark Few's longtime lieutenant is their head coach you know what as you just said that I realized that there are like I I actually I think I'd root for Gonzaga against Arizona and it doesn't have anything to do with Tommy Lloyd. Like, I, I, I think my dislike of Arizona extends high enough that I would generally, where that's not true with UCLA. Like, I generally, like this year I was rooting for UCLA in the tournament against Gonzaga. 
So I think that clearly answers that like some of some of what I'm doing is a little bit of an anti-Gonzaga act and I don't dislike them as much as I pretend to. The I just dislike out. I dislike Gonzaga fans assuming that I should like them, which is probably similar to soccer. Like I actually like soccer a lot more than people think. I just like making fun of soccer more than I like soccer. I, I like making fun of Gonzaga basketball. But yeah, no, it's a good question. I mean, it's kind of the merger of the two great. Arizona is a pretty insufferable basketball program. Like, if you're not an Arizona fan, like, they're, they're pretty obnoxious. Um, I should say, I got, I got a little bit of a soft spot for Arizona. Cause, Do you? Well, Tommy Lloyd's from Kelso. You know, how many, how many people well, You were just talking about County? how you didn't really like anybody from Kelso. Well, it's, it's like a, you know. Like a brother, like a sibling. You can say something bad about him, but nobody else can? Kind of, yeah. I mean, like my mom's family's from there. My grandma still lives there. You know, you'll catch you'll catch me out in Kelso. Uh, and uh, Longview native uh, Rambacamus is on there. He's he's I think he's their director of player personnel. Um, so there's there's too much Cowlitz County influence for for uh, for me to accept your Arizona slander. Director of player development, I should say. Cowlitz County sounds like it could be on the Dukes of Hazard, man. It could be. You know what? I worked on the worked on the Cowlitz County Road Crew for three summers <laughs> in college. That was a good job. Cowlitz County Road Crew was a good job. Yeah, I was certified. I was a certified flagger. <laughs> Flag traffic you... for oil for chip sealing. Yeah, oil, uh, oiling the roads and no. So you would stand out there all day, just like stop, go. Mm-hmm. It was so the the jobs you really wanted were like. So as summer help, we couldn't get um, CDLs, so yeah. we couldn't we couldn't operate like yeah. the heavy machinery. So that's why our job was usually flagging. They they the the guys who worked in the shop like loved it when it was the summer because then they did you know like the the low man didn't have to do the flagging right. The summer help would yeah. do it. So the jobs you really wanted were the ones that were out in the middle of nowhere, which a lot of county land is, where it's like okay, we're gonna. Like there's this tree that's been a problem and we're going to finally remove it. Or like there's this culvert that needs to be replaced. And it's at like an intersection where you might get like two cars every hour. Yep. Those are the ones you really wanted. Cause like, it's kind of boring, but it's low pressure, low stress. Oiling was stress because you're oiling roads that people drive on. It's this whole, like they we we called it the circus. It's this whole like operation of machinery. You've got, the oil distributor laying down the oil and then the dump trucks driving backwards with the, with the rock laying the rock down. And then you've got other trucks in line for when that truck runs out and has to go back to, to get more. You've got the, the person driving the roller that's going to flatten that out. And then you've got like two or three or four summer help walking behind that operation with brooms brooming out any of the like, you know, big spots, like, if you know, sometimes you get like a big clump of rocks that pile up in one spot. So you're smoothing everything out and it's this whole deal. So like the summer help jobs for that were flagging, brooming. Um, and then depending on like your comfort level with, with driving around all that stuff, the, the cush jobs when it was really hot were the buffer truck, which that's the first, the truck is in front of the, uh, distri- the oil distributor. And like that's that's you, you drive up around corners and stuff so that anybody coming that way can see that like there's stuff going on, you know. 
because the trucks are air conditioned. You listen to the radio, like that's a pretty cush job. And then there's a pilot car, depending, right? Like sometimes the the stretch of road that you need to have shut down by the flaggers is so long, you need a pilot truck driving back and forth between those flaggers, bringing people through traffic. So that was also a really nice job. Air condition, you're driving mm-hmm. back and forth. Um, you didn't want to be a flagger on like really, really busy. Like sometimes they, because dr- they just drop you where they drop you and are like, okay, flag traffic here. And like, sometimes the traffic would back up to like the next corner and you're like, oh geez, like the next person who comes around, like, I hope they stop. If someone rear ends someone, I'm going to get yelled at, whatever. And so. Might get yelled at regardless just because people are tired of waiting. Yeah. I, I'll, I'll tell you this, man. I, I wave, I smile and wave to every flagger I see anywhere now. <laughs> And I will forever. God bless him. <laughs> Is that the worst job you ever had? No, no. I like. I didn't look for. There were a lot, plenty of days I didn't look forward to going to that job, but it paid in two thousand eight eleven dollars an hour. Heck yeah. Um, in Longview, Washington. I mean, it. I made enough money during the summer to like you know get me through that year for of college for what I needed to pay for each year. Um, and during oiling season, we got a lot of overtime, you know, and the <laughs> oiling season was lucrative there in Callitz County. You'd learn, you'd learn like, <laughs> such, like it, it was, it was such a stereotypical, like government waste situation. Like you'd learn, okay, the day's over at four thirty, it's four Oh six. If we just spend an extra 15 minutes, like, cleaning up the scene out here we won't get back to the shop until after 4 30 and if we get back to the shop after any amount after 4 30 that triggers an hour of overtime so make sure you take your time getting back <laughs> a lot of that there's a lot of that uh i love it no my worst job was at a, a pizza place right before really? that mostly because i just sucked that? at it i just didn't get i just didn't pick it up the way i you know I struggled, uh, you know. I struggled getting into the playbook there. I was, I was slow learning the system. Was it the the dough? Was the dough an issue? Was it spreading of the sauce? No, I could make pizzas just fine. It was just all the like procedural stuff and how they wanted they wanted everything cleaned and arranged like a certain way. And um, yeah, I wasn't like terrible. I didn't get fired or anything. But that was the job I left to go do the the summer help thing. Yeah, well, oiling season comes around, and you know you got to go make some money. Hell yeah. I'm trying to get paid. That was a full-time job. That was 40 hours a week, you know? And maybe some overtime. Yeah. No, definitely some overtime. We're going to make sure there's some overtime. All right. I've got a question here, and this is a little bit, it's a little bit offbeat, but it's still in college sports. Did you watch the women's final? I did. You saw the reports regarding the, the, the viewership of the women's final, and mm-hmm. it's being presented, and this may turn out to be true as sort of this watershed moment for women's college basketball and maybe by extension women's basketball. I also in watching it realized that there is a racial component to that game and the way it was talked about afterward that I'm not even going to say I'm uncomfortable with it because I think it's a reality that happens in sports um, in our country when it becomes issues of black and white, like you see it in boxing matches. You saw it. You saw it in the NBA. Well, you saw it in the men's title, like the most watched men's championship basketball game to this day remains the 
Larry Bird, Magic Johnson final. Indiana State, Michigan State. And it's driven by a perception that doesn't really have necessarily have that much to do with the actual participants. But in watching the reaction to that game and specifically how everyone all of a sudden it became a was Angel Reese taunting Caitlin Clark the most classless thing you've ever seen or was it fine in this exhibit of a double standard? I realize that we haven't changed really or learned how to talk about these things in a way that acknowledges the racial dynamic that's going on. Yeah. Um, now that you say that, like, you didn't hear a lot about Angel Reese leading up to the game. Nope. Yeah, you know, and like, look, Caitlin Clark had the you know a tournament for the ages, an unbelievable season in general, and she's an incredible player to watch. Yeah, and and you know, likes to talk her stuff. Mm-hmm. You know me, I'm I'm very pro taunting. Yeah, I think there should be more of it at all levels of sport. Um, I you know I don't like. Beyond the the racial implication of all all those things, I was realizing today, or yesterday, yesterday, it was kind of like it was like halfway through the day, and I was like, "Oh right, I gotta make you know six o'clock. I gotta make sure I turn the the men's game on." And like I I realized I was not nearly as interested in watching San Diego State and UConn as I was for LSU and Iowa, and I you know that's never been the case for me before mm-hmm. and maybe that's a that's a me problem but now it was it's a pretty uninteresting final i was i was not intrigued i was more interested in watching the mariners last night than i was watching uconn win another national championship yeah i wound up watching uconn win another national championship because uh the mariners were were frustrating but i i will say this i was rooting for uconn for one simple purpose uh i have worked with in the past in the recent past to syracuse graduates and Syracuse graduates are the most, like, they complain about how annoying UConn graduates are and UConn fans. Like, oh, they're the worst fan base. And I'm like, you guys are the same. Like, you're similarly insufferable. And so listening to you complain about UConn fans is like listening to uh, Boston Red Sox fans complain about Yankees fans. Like, it's just awful. And I think I phrased it that it's like listening to Yankees fans complain about the Red Sox. And then someone chimed in goes, yeah, except it's the exact opposite because UConn has five times as many national championships as Syracuse. And I was like, oh, that was well landed. That, that, that one was fantastic. I just hope that, the, you know, we live to see the day where a, a Syracuse grad gets a shot in sports journalism. <laughs> it's, it's a tough road for them to hoe. There's no doubt about that. Yeah, you talk about the little engine that could, you know. Yeah. Um. But it's 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 interesting, like the because the dialogue around the women's final, I'm not sure how much it has to do with how the actual players really felt. And and I guess even as I'm saying that, I realize Angel Reese is very cognizant of the way her actions are being characterized. Um, and I don't say that I enjoyed Angel Reese taunting the the Iowa players. It didn't seem to bother Caitlin Clark that much, which I think is pretty telling about like if she talks a lot of trash she's probably aware that you have to take the talking of the trash back to you i don't um, think i've ever heard like a an elite competitor who lost a game in any sport like complain afterward that their opponent talked trash to them i know of one dude 
Who? Michael Crabtree. (laughs) (laughs) After Richard Sherman sunned him. Slapped him on the butt, said good games, stuck stuck out his hand, absolutely taunted him, and I loved it. Yeah. No, I I agree with you. I love all that stuff. Why did... But then people flipped out. And it's it's not like I think that they were... I guess I have to be careful in saying it. Like, I don't think it's wrong to say it was poor sportsmanship on Angel Reese's part to do the you can't see me. Which, by the way, is attributed to John Cena, and I believe it's Tony Yayo from the G Unit. I saw someone in- on Twitter point that out that it was don't don't go disrespecting Tony Yayo. Yeah, Tony Yayo. Um, it wasn't good sportsmanship, but like that's that's the end of it. Like right there, cares? like the, it's it wasn't good sportsmanship, and fine, like not even a misdemeanor. But it's like people have to go this extra, and and you saw it, and I'm like, okay, the extra. Like the extra, uh, Keith Olbermann, I think, was one of the ones I shot. And I saw that Samuel L. Jackson and Shaquille O'Neal both told him to shut up, um, which I enjoyed. But it's like, it's the extra stuff where I'm like, oh, we're just, we can't escape that dialogue. And it, it, it's brought out, like, I firmly think it's brought out because Iowa has a mostly white team. And LSU has a team that is largely African-American. It all of a sudden veers off into this same sort of characterizations that we've always heard about where the black players are praised for their talent and the white players are praised for their tenacity and their hard work when it's like, yeah, I, I don't think that really reflects how the actual competitors felt about the game. It's just so predictable too. Yeah. You see it and you know, you know exactly how it's going to go on Twitter. You know, like where the line's going to be divided and, you know, you, you kind of know which people in your orbit or in the sports media world or whatever are going to fall on which side. The fact that the fact that there that it's this binary where there's sides is even is ridiculous to begin with. It just just watch the game and enjoy like elite competitors going at it who I guarantee you are not offended or insulted by each other's actions. Here's the the the, the second part of this conversation there's the very distinct possibility this will be good for the sport. Well, with both those players coming back and, you know, they're, you know, they're going to be the face of the sport next year. And that's, and and you look at how the NBA's growth was its expansion, like the biggest period of NBA. I don't know that to be true. I don't know if it was the biggest, but certainly the point that took the NBA to, a frontline league on on par or in the same realm as Major League Baseball and the NFL took place while the two dominant teams were the Showtime Lakers and Larry Bird's Celtics with Kevin McHale. Um, that it growth like there's the very real possibility that this is going to be good for the awareness of the sport, and I can already feel like how fatigued I am is if this is going to be the dialogue that goes along with it. So I I hesitate to like proclaim this because I know that there's way more that goes into it than this and it's it's quite possible that the you know the popularity of the game would have accelerated anyway but it does make me think back to all of those those conversations around like are Gino Ariema and Yukon killing women's basketball and like is 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 Yukon's dominance bad for the sport and 
now UConn's kind of, I don't, dare I say down, right? Relative to what their expectations are, they are still, an, you know, the most elite of elite programs. But now that they're kind of out of the way as like a an immovable, you know, object, mm-hmm. we can't, you just can't, well, there's UConn and everybody else. Like, has that helped? You know, if, if Caitlin Clark played for UConn, would, oh. would the country have been as enamored with, oh my goodness, you know, this, look, you got you to gotta watch her. She's amazing. Because like, oh, that's Bri- interesting. I hadn't, Brianna I hadn't Stewart, thought of that, Christian. Brianna Stewart had like the greatest career in the history of college yeah. basketball. And did she have a nation, you know, hanging on, oh my God, we've got these last six games with Brianna Stewart here. You, you know, I'm sure some were, but I, I think there also was an element of like, oh, yeah, she, and she plays for UConn. We're just, you know, let's sit here and watch UConn win another, another title. Great, fun, you know? So I, I wonder if that's, if that's a factor too. You're right about that. You're 100% right about that. I hadn't thought about that, but that's very much true. Where I would have, if she was playing for UConn, I would have thought it's another UConn production. And that's just the way it goes. And they, she's great, and she's the latest in a long line of really great players who have come from that program. Way more interested that she was from Iowa. And it is good. It is good that you have multiple programs and knowing South Carolina and who South Carolina's best players are and Don Staley as a coach and being aware of LSU and Kim Mulkey. Yeah, I think you're right about that. Like if if Steph Curry had the same tournament that he had for Davidson for Duke, you know, does it does it resonate <laughs> as much? That would that would have been really difficult for me because as a Warriors fan, like Steph Curry's been one of my favorite athletes ever. And it would have been harder if he had come from Duke. <laughs> I'm yeah. not going to lie. Like one of the major through lines in my life is that I've never really rooted for Duke ever at really anything. Um, that would have been that would have been a challenge. Man, I, how how dominant is Angel Reese on the block, though? Because like I get to the point where, first of all, LSU was shooting the lights out, so you might as well keep shooting anyway. But I'm like, just shoot. Come down and jack up a three. There's like a 50% chance you're getting the offensive rebound because she's staking out position every single time. Like she is just, she's always in position to to get an O board. And it's not just because she's taller. Like she's not going up over the back of, of people every time. Like she's, there'd be a shot halfway to the hoop and you're like, oh, like that's a that's going to be a putback. Like either that's going in or Angel Reese is going to snag that and put it back in because she's already got position. She's already in position to grab the offensive rebound. It's one of the things that has changed most fundamentally in the men's game is that you don't have that same low block presence isn't isn't it's not as impactful anymore in the men's game. Even if you were and it becomes a chicken or the egg, like is it not being coached or something? But certainly watching Angel Reese in the way like what she have 15 and 10. I think she had a few blocks. I don't think she had any turnovers. And I, I know people were pointing out that Caitlin Clark, I think, scored 30. It was like, but you watch that game. Like, Angel Reese was the most important player in that game, and it was not particularly close. Yes, it, like LSU shooting the lights out is why the game went the way it did, but Angel, Angel Reese was the dominant player in that game. I don't think there's any doubt about that. I appreciate you indulging me in my 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 wild hair uh, characterization of the the discourse of the talking heads. Yeah, we can we can get back to the important stuff like who's taking reps at punter at spring practice <laughs> now. No, I think we we probably yammered long enough. Has it has it been? Did, let's let's ask a couple questions first. Did you like the new intro? 
I did, yeah. And I thought <laughs> that it was it was exactly what I envisioned. <laughs> <laughs> what do you got coming up on on Montlake this week? Uh, we'll probably have a little look at Raylan go forth, and then man, spring practice just stays stays steady coming. Wednesday, Wednesday morning they're back at it. Friday morning they're back at it. So by the time this publishes, you can read about Raylan go forth. You can read about. Wednesday's practice, um, and then I don't know if Tyson, I, Tyson Alger at I five corridor, and I started this series called Home and Home, where we write back and forth about UW and Oregon football. So it probably says something that like we have one of those, but but not with Gonzaga basketball. So <laughs> you know, which is which is the bigger rivalry. Um, I think we're planning to do that this week, but that's that's TBD. What do you got going? Well, I posted something today about why we can't. Why can't we find a dork millionaire or dork billionaire from Seattle that would buy a franchise and turn it into uh, start dropping their wallet on other people? It was inspired by Howard Schultz's testimony last week uh, in front of Congress in which he was like the whiniest billionaire I've ever seen. Yeah. He's, well, don't, he, don't, he, don't call him a billionaire. He is simply a person with billions of dollars. What the hell? Is that does that not strike anyone else as the most nonsensical complaint? Like he's basically saying, I don't like the tone that you use when you say that word that accurately describes me. He's acknowledged he's acknowledging the growing stigma around being a billionaire. That's all it is. He's very sensitive to the fact that anyone would perceive him as being like in in the social and socioeconomic class that that he and very, 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 very few other human beings are in. He doesn't like being called out for it. Do you know what he's like? He's someone who wants to be seen as the little engine that could. <laughs> Even though he's an economic powerhouse, he, he still wants to be seen as the guy who came from nothing and made it all the way. I made all the coffee. <laughs> I just make coffee. And then I'm working on something that I'm actually going to plan to offer uh, to, to, to you to, to post it on Montlake uh, as well. Uh, it is an oral history of sorts of what I call the greatest lie in the history of UW football. The greatest lie. Hmm, I don't, I don't know that, that that immediately comes to mind, that anything immediately comes to mind. Rick Neuheisel, when he said, I did not interview for that job in San Francisco. <laughs> that was that was a whopper. <laughs> probably, probably why he actually lost his job. Probably. Uh, so I've talked to John Levesque, uh, Mike Gastineau, as well as Ted Miller, who are kind of the three principal immediate media figures that were involved in the various iterations of the lie um, to, to do. It. It's pretty funny. Um, and so I, I'm hoping to have that done next week. Um, maybe a podcast element of that as well. All right. I'll look forward to that. That sounds very interesting. Um, you all should look forward to it as well. Until then, we will talk to you next week.